This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And... The Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I'm Katie Rich, and I'm here for this interview episode with Rebecca Ford. Hi, Katie. Uh, Rebecca, you and I and, and our little Goldman colleagues kind of all clocked in December that All Quiet on the Western Front was emerging as a huge potential contender. It landed on a bunch of shortlists, then it got a bunch of BAFTA nominations, and then it turned out to be a huge Oscar contender. It got a ton of nominations on Nominations Morning, and you got to talk to its director, Edward Berger, about how his huge German war epic kind of snuck out of nowhere to be this huge player. What'd you learn about that? Yeah, he got nine nominations. Um, you know, he seemed to really be taking this all in stride. He's already on the set of his next movie, and that's where he, you know, watched the nominations announcement. And it just feels like this was an extremely big, expensive production for Germany. But even he seems surprised that it landed so many nominations outside of international feature film. You know, he told me that the picture nomination was just just felt like the biggest accomplishment that uh, he could ever imagine. Well, and you think of what he accomplished on the set of this movie, like uh, recreating all those war sequences and making it so visceral and real. Like that's that's a lot to say that the Oscar was a big accomplishment compared to that. Yeah. Yeah. He talked a lot about how, um, you know, there were days on set where he nearly broke and he just like didn't know how they'd get through it. And they'd get stuck in the mud or they'd be dealing with these crazy tanks. And and even finding the the main uh, actor was a really uh, tough task for him. So he went, definitely went through a lot to get this made. Uh, yeah, I don't know how anyone makes any movie, much less anything that big. So I'm always kind of in awe. Um, well, let's hear more of your conversation with All Quiet on the Western Front director, Edward Berger. I'm so excited to welcome Edward Berger to the podcast today. He's the director of All Quiet on the Western Front, the Netflix war drama that earned nine Oscar nominations. Uh, Edward, thank you for joining me. Thank you so much, Rebecca. Thanks for having me. So I saw a little video of you watching the announcement. I think that's what the video was. Can you tell me about where you were when you found out about the film's Oscar nominations? 
Yeah. Uh, we're shooting a movie in Rome in the wonderful studios at Cinecittà, you know, where Fellini shot his movies and where so many movies were shot, like wonderful Italian movies. And so we took a little break with the crew to watch the announcements. And that's uh, what we did. We propped up the computer and watched it and were, of course, uh, wonderfully surprised and and felt a rush of joy and luck uh, coming over us while watching the nine nine times that our name was mentioned. Was there any, you know, the film got picture, screenplay, international features, score, sound, production design, cinematography, makeup and hair, and visual effects. Was there anyone that felt um, especially special to you? Well, I think, you know, best international and best picture is a pretty big thing for us. You know, best international, we're already so happy with. But then to top that off with best picture which rarely ever happens. You know, it's never happened for a German movie, by the way. So it's kind of historic for us. So, so that felt big, very big. Yeah, it's, it's, it's exciting to see uh, foreign language films landed best mm. picture. We've only seen that for the last few years, and I think it's a really exciting development. Um, and it speaks to how you know, widely loved this film has been. When did you first sort of realize that people were really falling in love with this movie and it was really affecting them? I think at all the screenings, the film just seemed to have a really healthy life. We started it in Toronto, fairly low-key, you know, premiered there, had a wonderful slot there, opening weekend. And, you know, we had many people watching it and great reviews after it. But still, it just sort of built up momentum from festival to festival, from screening to screening. You just sort of felt the, the wave of engagement that audiences had afterwards and how they wanted to talk about it and how they wanted to hear why we wanted to make it, especially also internationally. It didn't only play in Germany. It just felt like in England or America, there was a big wave of welcoming towards the movie. And so it just felt like from screening to screening, there was a building, it was building momentum and it was a great thing to witness. Yeah, it's been an exciting journey. Can you take me back all the way to the beginning and and tell me about when you first realized that you wanted to tell this story as a film? Uh, it was first uh, when I was called by Malte Grunert, by my good friend and producer of the movie. I was basically, I was shooting a movie again in New Orleans. And uh, he called me and I, and I immediately thought, damn, why didn't I have that idea? Because it just felt like a blind spot, like something we had to tell. And then we never did. It was only one big American movie made and a television movie as well in the 70s. And, but never from the German perspective. And that just felt like a perspective that felt worth sharing, you know, in terms of, you know, we usually watch American war movies or British war movies where we have heroes, we have heroes um, that conquer something or beat the enemy. And from a German perspective, you can never tell that kind of story. There are just no heroes. They're just, you know, there's, there's, there's just a very different legacy that was left behind in history. Like we feel shame and guilt and a sense of responsibility towards history, while an American audience, an American filmmaker can feel you know, sort of pride and honor about his ancestors sort of defending their country and liberating Europe from fascism. That just leaves a very different feeling within the filmmakers, I assume, you know, and because the films from America or England, they just feel a bit different. And we felt there was a, a good thing to share or an interesting thing to share 
what you know what that kind of legacy the german history kind of leaves in in the taste it leaves in our mouth and the weight of history it leaves on our shoulders and we felt that's an, an interesting to share that type of movie that comes out of that atmosphere that mood and that just felt like an urgent thing that we wanted to do and and it was probably three years ago and at that early stage what did you sort of anticipate to be most difficult in actually making the movie <laughs> I didn't, I unfortunately never really, or maybe fortunately never really thought about how difficult it would be because maybe <laughs> I wouldn't have made it. But also I really like challenges. I really like movies that I haven't, I want to tackle them that I haven't done before. I want to do things that feel I could fail and I could really screw it up and the movie could be a massive bomb and, and be terrible. You know, I want to have that feeling so to be really on my toes and be on edge and be really careful about how I make this movie. And so I, I always had that feeling, but I never really knew how difficult it would be to film the battle scenes and how almost they, I have to say, they almost broke me some, some days. You know, I drove in the, on, on, uh, to set in my car and with my DP. And sometimes I thought, I can't do it. I can't get through this day. And he just sat next to me. And luckily, we were really, really well prepped and had everything in, in storyboards because we didn't have that much money. We needed that type of planning. And we knew exactly what we needed from each shot. And he just gave me the sage advice while being 15 years younger than I am. So I don't know where he had that wisdom from, but he just gave me the sage advice to just take one one shot at a time. And that Breaking it down into little bits and pieces kind of saved us, I think. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. Was there a certain scene, whether that was a battle scene or something else, that ended up being a lot more difficult uh, in the end or was one of those moments that you felt like it may break you that you remember now? I guess that the tank scene was especially difficult mm -hmm. when the tanks appear out of the fog and, and go through this yellow fog and then drive over the trenches and almost crush or crush some of these young men. And that felt quite difficult. That felt because it was so complex and so many little bits and pieces and also we were battling, what we were battling with was the sun because I never wanted any sun and I never wanted spring to come. And I constantly feared that spring would come and ruin the movie because everything needed to be gray and wet and rainy and so forth. <laughs> and so I remember the exact day in April when I woke up, luckily it was a, it was a cold spring. So this happened very late in April when I woke up and the birds chirped in the morning, you know, when they come back and they suddenly chirp and it's the mm -hmm. summer is coming. And I thought, damn, those birds, I don't <laughs> want them to chirp. I want this to be winter, winter and, and snowy and rainy all the time. And then we just were racing against time and, and trying to get it ready. That's the first time I've heard anyone say they were upset about those birds. I was so upset about those birds. <laughs> 
But then we use those that sound. For example, if you remember the end of the crater scene where Paul is in the crater uh, and killing mm-hmm. the Frenchman, which was, by the way, a very difficult scene to shoot as well uh, and took a long time. And we really wanted to get it right because my daughter had mentioned that that was the scene she loved most in the book. And so I knew I couldn't screw up that scene. I knew I had to pay extra attention. And I remember doing the first rehearsal and the AD came up to me and sort of whispered in my ear and said, like, can you simplify? Because we're going to need four days. And there was only like a day and a half in the schedule. And I had to shut that ear and say, I can't listen to him. I got to listen to my daughter in the other ear Mm -hmm. and pay attention to that scene and make sure it's good because I really didn't want to disappoint her. Um, And so we ended up shooting it in three, four days. So we took some more time than planned. But at the end of that scene, there's suddenly that birds are uh, are chirping, swifts. And for me, that's always the sound of summer and the sound of peace and the sound of beauty in a way. So it's Paul listens to suddenly swifts flying overhead and it's a really peaceful sound. And so that chirping birds ended up being a good thing for the movie. Hmm. The film does a really good job. I mean, it, it is a hard watch and it, it does really show the sort of horror of war, but you, you're able to put in these moments that feel light, you know, when they all get the goose together and, and, and sort of balance it for the viewer. How much did you have to sort of think about the viewer's experience watching this as you were making it? A lot. First of all, we wanted to be very subjective and grab the audience by the lapels or throat and drag them through the mud with with Paul, sort of put put them into his shoes and feel what he feels. And so, and obviously that is a very visceral, physical, hard experience. And it had to be hard because anything less would have been, would have felt like propaganda. So we wanted it to be a hard watch. And for that reason, whenever there was the possibility to bring lightness, I said, th- that was basically my main note to the actors. I was like, let's, let's, you know, this scene, you're stealing the goose. Why don't you run up to it and play a little game who's faster at defense or something? There was second shooting day. I knew that we had to, whenever there was even a smile on a face or some laughter, it was important to just in order not to break the audience, you know, in order to keep them and, and have that sense of release or relief that laughter brings, you know? Uh, and so it was very important as a contrast. When I spoke to you and uh, your cinematographer, James Friend, earlier, you, you mentioned how he had gotten stuck in the mud one day. Like it was just so thick and difficult during some of those uh, trench scenes. And, and I'm curious for you, how did you sort of keep everyone energized on those hard days, especially days that may have been more physically demanding on everyone? I think really positivity. That's the main thing. That you keep it positive. You keep it, you know, despite all the all the difficulties, you keep it in a way fun. Because everyone really gave everything. And I had some crew members, for example, there's the wonderful prop master who who was there when we shot right in that big puddle in the middle of the crater, when we shot that big crater scene. And he was wearing waders and and, uh, you know, waded through the mud and through that big, big pond, basically, the hip deep, collecting the gun that fell into the water, the rifle and the, the ammunition belt. 
And at the end of that day, he showed me his, his fitness band and he said, I ran or I walked or waded through mud half a marathon today. So 20 kilometers, you know, 21 <laughs> kilometers. He walked at that day with waders on. So it was really strenuous for them. And so just to keep everyone sort of engaged. And, but I also think everyone felt they liked the images and they liked the actors. And Felix, the main actor, is just a wonderful person who is extremely personable, extremely always there. You know, you say, okay, we're ready. He's two seconds later, he's in front of the camera and wants to get going. And so there was this energy of wanting to do it and wanting to make this movie from everyone. And that was very, very helpful. And tell me about finding the right actor to play Paul. How, why did you have to search and how did you know you had the right person? So I made it complicated. I made life, life hard for myself. I could have had it much <laughs> easier. Felix Kamara, the main actor, Paul Bo playing Paul Boimer, was the first picture that was ever shown to me by the producer's wife. She's, she works in a theater in Vienna, uh, in a very big theater, in a very old theater, very, with the, the biggest or the oldest, most preeminent theater in Europe called the Burg Theater. And he's part of that ensemble. But he had just left drama school. It was their first year and was, uh, you know, was kind of underused, sort of in small roles and so forth. And he was just sitting around. And she said, this is a really good kid. You should look at him. So I saw the picture, immediately liked him, thought he looked great and said, all right, let's invite him to a casting. So he came to, we flew him in from Vienna to Berlin. We cast him. But I'm, I guess I'm the sort of person who wants to make sure that this is, I really liked him the first time. Because this is also this old-fashioned, transparent, very studious face. He doesn't also he doesn't look like a hero, yeah. And that was important mm. for him. Mm -hmm. He looks just like you and I, just like normal, not like a movie star, you know. And he re was very convincing in the first casting. But I'm the type of person, who, I guess, who walks into a, a store and I'm not going to buy the first suit. I'm going to try all of them on, and then I go back to the one that I like most. So I wanted to. See, see every young actor, every young, even non-actor in Germany. And so we did a really, Germany, Austria, and Switzerland. So we did a really wide casting, maybe 200, 300, 400, 500 people. I forget, like a lot, a lot of young wow. kids. And it was interesting. Some of them, I, and I thought that the character is 18 and he's very, very, it's a very famous book. You know, it's a very iconic character. So I wanted someone innocent, but also in terms of his innocence with the camera and his eyes, like an innocence in his eyes, but also for the audience, not someone they had seen in seven other different movies, you know, so that they, they, I wanted them to be fresh to this kid and think of him only as Paul Boimer, not an, oh, I've, this is Paul Boimer who I've seen in that other movie before. So I wanted to find someone new. And a lot of the 18-year-olds, interestingly enough, uh, even though the character is 18, but he plays an arc of, he goes through an arc of being this enthusiastic, studious kid who goes off to war and very quickly finds out that, uh, you know, all his ideals, all his values, all his morals, every, all his youth, innocence dies in the mud immediately. And he becomes a beast of survival, a killing machine who can only survive if he kills others sort of kills his, his inside, you know, kills his soul. And he ends up being very dead 
in his eyes, uh, age be beyond his age, you know? And so the character needed to be able to play that, that arc. And Felix immediately got that. He was able to play that. He's 24, so he's gotten a little bit of wisdom in his young age. He's very intelligent on top of it. But, you know, at 24, you maybe have been left by a girlfriend or boyfriend. You've got some disappointments. You've finished your studies. You've moved out of your house. You're a little bit on your own feet, and you've had a bit of a life. The 18-year-olds all were almost, they were able to play the beginning, but never the end, never the disillusionment. Because they, at 18, you remember, you know, you think, I, I can conquer the world. I can do anything, you know. And at 24, you realize, maybe I can't, you know. I can't. Maybe there's, there's other great people around. I'm going to have to sort of prove myself, you know, and really work hard for it. And, um, uh, and so we, we invited him. And I think I cast him four or five times. And so it took a long time and we really put him through a lot. And eventually we just knew, you know, we put in the second casting, I think we put, put boots on him and a uniform and you know how heavy boots just changed the way you walk, you know, and really grounded him and he got heavier and more of a soldier, a studious soldier, I guess, which was perfect for the role. And bit by bit, he grew into this role and just convinced us that, Basically, after four or five casting, after process, maybe of four or five months, we knew there was only him. There was no one else to play this role. Um, I was reading up. I mean, he's so wonderful in the role. You really can't take your eyes off him. I, I, this movie wouldn't have worked without the right actor there. So. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And and I was reading up on you, and and I know you went to Tisch at NYU, and yeah. And then I read that you worked at um, Good Machine and helped with directors like Ang Lee and Todd Haynes' films. Can you tell me a little bit about that time in your career? I think I, basically I finished Tish and I always wanted to be a director, but I thought like, oh God, I want to be a director, but what am I doing now? You know, how am I going to make money? No one's going to give me any money to make a movie. Uh, and I didn't have a script and things like that I wanted to do. So I needed to write that. So I just, I had been a big fan of Good Machines movies uh, I'd seen them in the theaters and I just went there and knocked on the door. And it was a tiny company, maybe five, six people. And this one guy opened the door called Anthony Bregman. He's a, he's a great producer now in New York, uh, still a very good friend. And he opened the door and said, oh, you want to work here? Yeah, come in, let's talk. And after mm. half an hour uh, or an hour of talking, he it was really fortuitous. He just said he happened to have time and sort of, and he said, yeah, if you want, uh, you can start as an intern, unpaid, of course. And so I started, worked there for, I think, two or three months. And then after that, that turned into a job. And I just stayed for about a year and a half. And I remember always writing. We had to write these reviews of what we wanted to be in the end, where we wanted to go, how the company was working, like every six months. We had to write that. And it was part of the philosophy. And that's really what I learned at Good Machine about the accuracy, the diligence that's, that goes into making a movie and trying to get better and better every single time. Just trying to make it better, trying to, to find a better system, trying to find a better way of making a movie, trying to find the right angle. And by the way, that's Ang Lee. I always admired him, how he sort of adapted the style depending on the story. He really went by the story and really focused on the characters and tried to 
to take the audience on the journey with the characters in the story. And I, I learned that from him, by, from watching him. But essentially, I kept writing in my you know, yearly reviews that I wanted to be a director. And Ted Hope, one of the bosses, basically read those reviews and he said, you want to be a director? What are you doing here? You know, this is a producer's career. If you're staying here, you're going to be a producer. And I remember uh, always thinking, yeah, but, you know, I need the job. And, like, what am I going to, you know, I can't, I'm not a director yet. I want to be, but, like, I, I can't just go out and direct. And he said, yes, you have to go. You have to go. Eventually, you have to go. And so I remember on Ice Storm, we were gearing up to do Ice Storm, and we were all making $400 a week, so very little money. And Ice Storm was one of the first bigger budget movies that Good Mission did. Before that was Sense and Sensibility. But there was a job opening on Ice Storm. And Anthony took me to lunch and said, do you want to, you know, I'd like to offer you this one job. And I knew I had seen the budget for this movie and I knew what this job was paying. And it was paying like four or five times as much as I'd earned at that time. And I was like, is that is the money that I'm going to earn? Is that that amount that's in the budget that, $2,000 a week or whatever it was. Yeah. So a lot of money for me. And he said, yes, I, you know, we're making bigger movies now. I, I would like people to get paid. Uh, it's, it's an industry standard, so we're growing, and that's, that's the type of money we're like. And I said, I can't do it. I got to leave. And mm. he, he said, I was hoping you would say that. Uh, because he knew if I had taken that job and I knew if I'd taken I would have, I would not be a director now. I would have taken that other career path that Ted had always said, that this is a producer's career. Wow. So what did you do? I left, wrote a script, and shot that script. That was the beginning. That was my first movie. Yeah? You just have to go out and write and freelance. You know, you're going to freelance and to, to survive off of it. And, and But then you can... In your free time, you can write the script and, and eventually make it. Hey, I'm Brian Stelter, host of Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. This week, with the help of Dan Adler and Olivia Nuzzi, we're going inside the media circus swirling around Donald Trump's criminal trial. People want coverage of Donald Trump. There are sort of shades of 2015, 2016. I found it to be a, a total break from the reaction to a lot of Trump coverage in the last two years. Join me, Brian Stelter, on Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Listen wherever you get podcasts. And you, you mentioned that you always wanted to be a director, but where did that start? Where did that first come from? Like since childhood? No, because I came from a, and first of all, I, I come from a city, a fairly small city in, it's called Wolfsburg. It's in West Germany. It was in West, West Germany and they built the Volkswagens there. So it has nothing to do with cinema. There's nothing, very little to do with art. And my father was an engineer and my father, my mother worked at, basically was a home, stay at home mom. And we had, I had three siblings, and my two older brothers were studying engineering as well. And so that was kind of, a, I thought, my path. And in Wolfsburg, you don't become a film director. You become a teacher, you become a baker, you become a lawyer, doctor, engineer, whatever. You know, one of these jobs, these proper jobs, real jobs. So that was sort of, that wasn't really a choice. And then I, I remember at 14 or 15, 
I, with my school, we went to the art school in the next city over, the bigger city, like a half an hour away or an hour away. And we went there and there was a film class there. And I was so thrilled. And suddenly I realized, oh, you can study that. That's actually a study program. You can learn it. And these people are making it. And I went home really enthusiastic and told my brother. And he just looked at me and said, like, well, you're going to drive a cab later. I wouldn't do that. <laughs> and so I gave that up. Immediately, I said, like, oh, it's my older brother. He must be right. So I forgot about it. But I kept making, from then on, I sort of kept making, but more as a hobby. I went to, you know, to theater groups and, and kept making like short movies or short, tried to make them, you know, they were terrible on video and Super 8. And uh, I really had no clue. And then when it came to studying, my father asked me, so you got to decide what do you want to do? And I said, well, engineering. And he was really, he was really, I wanted to study engineering. I had a place already in Berlin to study engineering. And he was really, my mom too, they both kind of looked at me, are you sure? You're writing a lot. You're making these small, are you sure you want to do that? I mean, we're happy to support it. You can do whatever you want. They were so supportive. They were so wonderful. But, uh, you know, we have this feeling you, you, you have other desires, other, you know, you, you, you have other goals. You said, no, no, I want to do this. And so I went to Berlin, first day of school, sat in class, in a math class with a couple hundred other students and listened to the teacher, to the professor up front. And after that hour, I thought, I can't do it. I have to do, I have to, and I went to art school. Well, I'm curious, after this experience with All Quiet and and the success of the film, and it sounds like you're already on your next project, but how has this experience sort of influenced what you want to do in the future? It's always different. You know, every movie's different. You start again from scratch and you suddenly find a movie where you never thought you'd find it. You see something and that inspires you to think like, oh, wow, I want to make a movie like that. But I really like the physicality of this film, the visceral nature of it, and trying to put the audience through this visceral experience. I really enjoyed that. And I really enjoy those type of stories. And so I think I could imagine that that pulls me in that direction, but you never know. You know, I'm always surprised. And I was surprised by all quiet coming my way. I know I was never planning to do it. And suddenly it was there and it was undeniable. And you want to have that feeling that you want to make this undeniable movie every time. And, and the movie I'm making now is very quiet. It's a very intellectual, quiet, emotional also, but it's a very quiet film and, and poetic in a way. And I'm really enjoying that too. So it, it just pulls you in different directions and it always surprises you with it, where the story comes from. And, and I've, I also enjoy that. I want to uh, change gears every time and not do the same thing. Well, the Oscars are a couple months away. I assume you're coming out for them. Are you, is there anyone you're looking forward to talking to about their films or, or, or meeting on the red carpet? Or what are you really looking forward to about being here? Yeah, I think I hear the Oscars, the Academy luncheon is just the nicest thing. Oh, yeah, that's a good one. Because you just get Mm -hmm. to sit with other people 
and they sit next to you and you talk film and you talk, you can say, I really loved your film and these people that you've watched and seen their work all your life and, you know, Steven Spielberg will be there and all these things are pretty exciting to me. You know, the other international filmmakers I'm really thrilled to see, to meet as well. We've had a couple of Zooms and they were always very interesting of how they made their films and I really seen them all I really like their films and I think that's a thrilling exp I'm really looking forward to when I had the world premiere in Toronto I went on the plane after this this movie was really hard to make and I went on the plane and I thought you know what from now on I'm just going to enjoy it and have fun enjoy the experience And I ordered a glass of champagne on the plane, and this is exactly what I did. <laughs> and from then on, it's just been a really fun ride, and I plan to continue it that way and, and meet interesting new people. That does it for today's interview episode. We'll be back on Thursday with our roundtable conversation. In the meantime, you can find us on Twitter at VF Awards Insider. That's a new handle. Everyone should go follow it. Uh, we're at VanityFair.com, and we're on Twitter on our own. I'm at Katie Rich and Rebecca. Becca M. Ford. Our editor and producer, as always, is Brett Fuchs. I'm Nomi Fry, and this week on Critics at Large, we're talking about the delights and shortcomings of the new movie Challengers. It starred Zendaya at the center of a tennis triangle and a very steamy love triangle. Who are her loyalties to? Will she be tempted by the other one? How do these guys reckon their professional playing ambition with their romantic and sexual feelings about this mysterious woman? And such we have it. We have a conflict between three people in a game meant for two. Is it a sports movie or a sex movie? Find out on Critics at Large from The New Yorker. New episodes drop every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> 